Today's reading is from Job, chapters 1 and 2. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest among all the people in the east. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabines attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground to worship and said, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Elahaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance... They could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. This is the word of the Lord. Well, have you heard the story about the mountain climber who slips over the side of a cliff and hangs clinging to a rope over a thousand foot drop? Desperately, he looks up into the heaven and says, is there anyone up there who can help me? Um, a voice then booms from, from above. You'll be saved, but first you have to prove your faith by letting go of the rope. So the man looks down and looks back up again and shouts, is there anyone else up there who can help me? Um, when hard times hit, we look upwards, don't we? And rightly so. It's really hard to avoid in the Bible that God is sovereign over every suffering, um, as much as he's sovereign over every blessing. But who do we see when we look up? And how does he answer us when we ask him for those questions? Why me? 
Why now? Why at all? Um, I don't know how you feel about starting a series in the book of Job. Um, we're going to look at this book over the next four Sundays. Um, but hopefully, what I'm about to say is going to pique your interest a bit, because I think I'm just about to say something that's surprising. Uh, and that is that over these four Sundays, we're going to find that the book of Job isn't all about suffering. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of suffering in it. Um, it's already been pretty hard to miss in that little slice that we've heard from this morning already. Uh, but the book wasn't written for us to understand our suffering. Uh, if you're hoping to find the reason or the cause of your own suffering in the book of Job, you're actually not going to. Uh, and again, don't get me wrong, Job does ask that question. In fact, all the way through, he asks God over and over again why he, God has done what he's done to Job. But Job never finds the answer. And neither will, we, um, neither will we find an answer to our suffering in Job. But I think we're going to be pleasantly surprised to find something so much better than an answer to our suffering. Because at the end of this book, although we'll find Job still in the same pile of dust and ashes he was there in um, chapter 2, verse 8, although he's been given no clear answer over all the 42 chapters of, the, of this book as to why God has caused his suffering, Despite all that, at the end of the book, Job will be kneeling down and saying that God is wonderful. Um, the book of Job is about helping us to see that our God is wonderful, even when we don't understand what he's doing. It's about looking up and trusting the one we know is up there, who is sovereign in the good and the bad. Job teaches us humility. Humility that says we need to trust God in the face of a world that can't understand. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that this series is going to be hard for some of us, even many of us, that there have been seasons or there is now a season when we've been asking, why God? How God? Help God? I'm not going to sugarcoat it because hearing the lessons of Job is probably not going to feel like flicking, a light, flicking on a light switch to achieve contentment with our suffering. The attitude this book encourages, encourages in us is actually really hard. Um, well, next week we're going to see in particular how much Job struggled with it. But it's my prayer that at the end of these four weeks we will see why humility is the only way to experience suffering and blessing alike. It's the only way to keep seeing that God is good and wonderful regardless of what we experience. Um, now, the case for a real historical Job is a good one. Um, Uz is a real place, and Job is treated as real elsewhere in the Old Testament and the New. Um, but the book isn't quite written like a news report or an autobiography or something like that. Um, there's poetry and there's drama. Uh, it's way more like a play with scenes on earth and in heaven. Um, there's a few different acts through the book, and there's even an interval right in the middle. Um, now, the first and most important thing that we learn about Job in these um, opening chapters is in the first verse. Um, so if you have that in front of you, if you want to open that, look at the first verse. The, the most important thing that we learn about Job um, is there, um, that Job was blameless and upright, which doesn't mean that he was perfect, but it does mean that he was godly. And we're told three times in this chapter, um, these chapters that God was blameless and upright. Once here by the narrator and then twice later, God actually himself uh, affirms that Job uh, is good um, and upright, that Job is godly. Um, and that idea 
that assignation of Job is really important for the whole book. Because for much of it, Job's friends are going to be blaming Job for his suffering, saying that it was some hidden sin that provoked God to punish him. But these chapters, that God himself actually shows us that they're not right. That Job was godly, a paragon of piety. There was nothing in his conduct that could be seen to justify what was about to happen to him. And he had the ideal family. He had the perfect number of sons, the perfect number of children. Uh, He was overly blessed. More livestock and servants than you could count. I have no idea what he does with that many camels. Uh, No clue. Verse 4, he was the greatest and wealthiest man in in his region. And he was deeply committed to the salvation of his children. Uh, He'd take precautionary measures to sacrifice for their sake, going well beyond the requirements of any law of the Israelites. And the narrator gives us that little detail as like this signal of his integrity. The whole picture is of Job living this exemplary life. Um, And it's at this point that we reach the complication of today's uh, today's reading. Uh, And that complication is one of the three different conflicts in the book of Job. Um, This is the conflict between God and Satan. The other two conflicts are the conflict between Job and his friends, um, and at the end, the conflict between God and Job. But here, the first conflict is between God and Satan. And it's a conflict that only lasts these two chapters. It's actually resolved by the end of chapter 2 when Satan retires, and he's never mentioned again in the book. And yet I think it's actually the conflict that contains the biggest, the, the, greatest, tra- the dra- greatest tragedy um, of all the, all the book of Job. More than all the suffering that happens in Job is the accusation which the accuser brings against Job. And implicitly, the accusation uh, that Satan brings against God. Um, now, Satan here is not his personal name. It's, it's a description. It's a role. Um, as I've already kind of um, alluded to, it means accuser or adversary. That is the challenging or opposing party. Um, in verse 6, the Satan is among the angels, the members of God's court, who come and present themselves before God. Um, and at first brush, the Satan here doesn't seem to be particularly malicious or particularly evil. I mean, he's answering the Lord's question. He's asking to test the Lord's conclusion. But he's not actually particularly subtle either because he's questioning, um, what he's questioning is something that God has affirmed. In suggesting that Job has impure motives, he's actually challenging God's affirmation of Job. Satan's incredulity at Job's piety is actually pitted against the Lord's confidence in Job. Um, I think there's actually some likeness here out of the Garden of Eden, the snake undermining the Lord's judgment that you will not surely die. Here, God has said that Job is blameless and upright, a faithful, obedient follower, and, and the Satan has challenged him on it. Um, have a look down um, at verse 9, um, at, at Satan's, the accuser's challenge. He says, does, God fear Job, uh, does Job fear God for nothing? That question is sarcastic, right? Do you really think that Job is godly because he fears you? Because he respects you, God? Don't you realize Job's a fake? That he's playing a game with you? Satan's saying that Job is playing the pious one. He says, God, he's just playing the pious one and you're pouring down blessings. 
As soon as it seems like godliness no longer works, as soon as there's nothing to be gained from fearing you, Satan says Job will quickly show his true colors. That's the basis of Satan's challenge. That God would stretch out his hand and strike Job to reveal, to expose Job's heart so that Job would drop the charade and curse God instead of seeming to fear him. Um, it's helpful to actually pause and think about that challenge for a moment because I really think that's the most, um, that's what's going on in these two chapters. Um, on, one, on the one hand, it's a necessary question. It's a really good one. Because if it's true, if Job really is just putting some sort of religious coins into some kind of divine vending machine to get out as many camels as he can, then Job really needs to be exposed for that. But on the other hand, it's an awful, awful question. Because what is Satan implying about God? He's not just saying that Job is a fraud. He's saying that God is a fool. That God has been hoodwinked, that God's blind, that God can't see beyond the surface. And if you're asking the question, why does God allow this test of Job? I think the answer lies in this. Because it's not just Job who's being questioned. It's God, right? Satan is challenging God's affirmation of Job and challenging through that, challenging the way that God runs and governs the world. It's kind of like the way that um, uh, like the opposition in a parliament scrutinizes the government's policies. God seems to be allowing Satan's scrutiny of his judgment of Job, allowing Satan's scrutiny of his ruling of, over the world in order that he might be proven right or wrong. So God grants the Satan permission to afflict Job. But don't miss the fact that he sets really strict boundaries. In the first test, in chapter 1, verse 12, the Satan isn't to lay a finger on Job. Um, in the second test, you can see that chapter 2, verse 5, uh, the Satan isn't to afflict Job's flesh. Um, can, sorry, can afflict Job's flesh, but he has to spare Job's life. God is actually really careful in setting the boundaries. Um, remember Satan's request that, it's, that he, he actually asked that God's hand be stretched out. There's no sense in the text that God is separated by Satan from Job's suffering. He really is sovereignly behind it, even as the Satan is given some agency in bringing it about. Um, you can see that in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 3 as well. Now, Job's response to this testing is famously wonderful, which is so, um, so interesting given his testing is so terrible. Now, his afflictions come in rapid succession from all four points of the compass. The, the number and terrifying nature of them give this kind of profound sense of a total and catastrophic loss. And, and Job's response, um, have a look at it um, down in verse 20. Job gets up, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground, says, naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
Job expresses mourning and grief, tearing his robe, shaving his head, the equivalents of dressing in black, they're symbols of sadness. And yet despite his sadness, Job doesn't curse God. Job acknowledges that he has no right to the blessings he enjoyed. But God's is the right to give and to take. And so Satan is wrong. He takes God's blessings from Job, but Job continues to bless God. Um, Now, as you know, Satan doesn't give up there. He isn't finished yet. He, He tries again, but this time he goes deeper. He makes it personal. He makes it physical. Skin for skin, he says. He accuses Job, um, Job's fear of God, to be skin deep. Maybe he's been able to harden his heart to losing everything he has, but if you fill him with pain, if you break down his health, he'll have no desire or reason left to bless you. That's when he'll curse you. Well, again, God allows Satan to test Job. But again, Job doesn't curse God. And that's despite Satan Satan inflicting a sickness so intense on Job that his friends can hardly recognize him. They just weep when they see him. They fall into silence. Now his wife comes along and she doesn't understand him. She doesn't understand what he's doing. Um, If Satan had tested her, she would have failed. She sees no reason for integrity when God's blessings are gone. And Job responds to her quite harshly. She calls her a fool. Um, He calls her a fool. One of the strongest words for a fool in the Old Testament as well. This is kind of word that's reserved for someone renouncing God's ways completely. He says she's wrong. His response isn't to curse God, but instead the right response, the response that he, uh, he makes is to submit to God despite what he's been given. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job sits in his suffering, silent, refusing to curse God. Now the silence with his friends lasts a week. It's only broken in chapter 3 when Job at last opens his mouth to curse, not God, but the day of his birth. And we'll be thinking about that next week as we turn to those chapters. Job is fearing God for nothing. He fears God for nothing. He passes both of Satan's tests. He proves that his fear of God doesn't depend on what God does for him. There's no quid pro quo. He fears God without expectation of return. He fears God because of who God is, the one who gives and takes, who delivers good and trouble. Job's piety is not for his prosperity, but for the God who simply deserves it. It reminds me of Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive all glory and honour and power, for you made all things, and by your will all things have their being. I really think Job understood that what it looks like to live knowing that God doesn't need to earn our good behavior, but he simply deserves it. And God ought not, that God ought to be feared for nothing. That's a wonderful response of Job, isn't it? Job relating to God rightly. 
recognizing that he doesn't deserve anything, anything from God, that he hasn't earned by his actions or status any particular blessing, that God deserves only blessing regardless of whether he is given or taken away. I really do think that we've got a lot to learn from Job. Um, now Christmas is only four weeks away, and I hope that's not too much of a surprise for you. Um, Job really is a bit of a strange book to do in the lead up to Christmas. Um, Job isn't really much about sin and salvation. It doesn't really touch on the long-awaited deliverance of God's people um, looking forward to a Messiah. Not, not really any of those themes in Job. Despite that, um, here's kind of my little way of making this series at, li- at least a little Christmas-related. I think Job teaches us profoundly that God isn't Santa. And Santa, who has the list of those who've been naughty and those who've been nice, who dishes up presents or coal, depending on which side of the line that you fall on. I think we can treat God like Santa. Like all I have to do is keep him on side and he'll get me on, on he'll, he'll get, let me get on with life without too much fuss. And we can invent like whole religious systems around those ideas, a combination of different levers to pull and the hope that blessings will follow. Bible reading, prayer, church, serving, growth group, giving. We can do these things. We can play the religious game thinking and hoping that it'll keep God on side, that it'll keep our names on his nice list. I hope you see what folly it is to do those things for that reason. To treat God as if he was a fool. Treat God as if he was a fool to fall for our attempts to use him for his blessings. At the end of the day, really, it's just idolatry. We don't fear God for nothing. We don't fear God at all. We just reduce him down to something more manageable for us. We shrink him down to something that will work for us. It's pretty dangerous, isn't it? Exchanging God for a game. But it's an attitude, I think, that can lurk behind our piety. It was there for Job's wife when, when all the blessings were gone. She said, why bother with God? Just curse him and die. Satan, I think, gets one thing right. Our ideas of God are exposed in our suffering. When the coal comes instead of the presence, we find out what we think. Who is it that we really care about? God and his glory or me and my experiences? I think that's what the book of Job really is about. Not our suffering, but, what our, but about what our suffering exposes. Our ideas of God that come to the surface. Now, the book of Job isn't just two chapters long. There's much more to Job's experience of his suffering than this. Um, it doesn't take long to see that his real, real and deep struggle with his suffering um, He struggled to understand the God who would give him such suffering. But the faith he expresses here in chapters 1 and 2, and what he returns to at the end of the book, this is the model of faith we need in a world of both blessing and suffering. A faith that includes a readiness to receive either prosperity or disaster. A faith that in chapter 13, verse 15, is going to say, Though he slay me, I will find hope in him. A faith that trusts God in the middle of disaster, that trusts God simply because of who God is rather than because of what God does for us. 
Job shows us what it looks like to live a life whose center of gravity is not me and my experiences, but the glory and the honor due to God. As Christians, we have more, way more reason than Job to know the goodness of God, don't we? Oh, we've seen in Christ his great love for us. The cross stands as a witness to the fact that God's goodness doesn't depend on our piety. We know that Christmas doesn't come in response to our godliness. Instead, God's greatest blessings came in Christ because God destined sinners for sonship and sent his son to secure their salvation. There's a really great relief in orienting ourselves rightly around this God. Um, Have you ever wondered uh, to yourself, will I really always follow Jesus? One of you have had that whisper before. Will I really always follow Jesus no matter what life throws at me? What if God takes away that person? What if he gives that illness or he takes those savings? Would I really still trust God then? What would happen to my faith? I think the, the faith of Job is the answer to those fears. One that rests in God who is good in himself, not just good in what he gives. The faith of Job perseveres in both prosperity and disaster. Um, Let's pray that God would help us as we look to having that faith. Um, Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the example of Job. Help us with Job to fear you, not so we may receive your gifts, but so that you may receive all glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.